This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote ideas to the meaning of the word? Good morning, Christopher. Good morning. It's the Thursday morning, which is a rare recording time for us. Rare. This is one of six we're recording this week. (laughs) When this comes out, it could either be November of 2023 or it could be Christmas of 2024. I don't know. (laughs) We are Andrewless this morning, but we have, I think, a lot of fun conversation to get into. Today, we're joined by Jorge Manrubia, and we are going to talk about turbo we're going to talk about rails we're going to talk about ruby who knows what else we'll get into but first i would like to ask if you wouldn't mind maybe just giving brief introduction into where you work how you started working there things like that i think it'd be interesting to hear well first of all thank you so much for having me in the podcast i'm a big fan of this one regular listener so i'm thrilled to be here <laughs> so yeah my name is Jorge Manrubia. I work as lead programmer at 37signals. I live in Valencia, in Spain. And in terms of open source, I'm the main author behind Active Record Encryption. And also, I recently present a new feature in Turbo that will arrive in Turbo 8, which is using Morphine for smoother page updates. And what else? I like to write a lot. So I'm writing many technical articles on 37signals step site and also in my own personal site. So yeah, that's me. I meant to, in the introduction, say that if you're listening and you haven't read some of the technical articles that Jorge's written, you should because they are insightful, but they're also fascinating looks at how you and 37signals approach code. And I think people really love that type of content. I love reading it. So thanks for writing that stuff. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. The reception for those articles has been a super nice surprise for me. A bunch of people have reached out. They have written me like plenty of emails, like with questions or with showing their appreciation. And yeah, it has been like a a wonderful thing. I wasn't expecting like so many interesting interactions with folks around the world because of those articles. So thanks so much for your kind words. I appreciate that. So you work at 37 Signals. I would be kind of curious to hear maybe how you got into Ruby and how that led into working for the company that extracted Rails. The thing is that both 37 Signals and Rails were in my radar, I think, since Rails started, especially I think since version 2. Back then, I was into the Java enterprise. I was working for the IT department of the Social Security Office in Madrid, Spain, if you believe it or not. So there was like uh, all about enterprise Java there, J2 EE. I don't know if you're familiar with, okay, with the very good old times of Java enterprise. Anyway, Rails was launched like an answer to a lot of madness going on in the Java world in those days and got my attention immediately. Then around 2010 or something like that, I started my own company, my own product company using Rails, which was called Sendan. Sendan was getting things done tool that never really gained much traction to make a business out of it, but it served me to learn Rails for good because so far it has been like a side thing, but when you build something real that you need to operate with real customers, it's like when you really learn <laughs> the technology, right? So after that, I got to work for all the companies. The thing is that the design thing that was always in my radar, especially when I became experienced enough with Rails 
so that I started to feel that I had a chance of getting to work there. And I tried many times. I tried to apply, I don't know, maybe five times, five different times, both when there were openings and also when there were no openings. I actually wrote a blog post back in the day, which is, I think it's called How I Got Hired by 37Signal or by Basecamp or something like that. So it was not like, oh my God, I want to do this. I'm going to do that in a linear way. It was more like trying and failing. I remember once I wrote like a super length cover letter. It was like, I don't know, multiple pages, six, seven, eight pages. And I remember seeing a post from David somewhere asking people, please be concise in your cover letters. So it was like, oh, okay. So they don't want like a, a lot of text. I tried to adjust what I was doing. And eventually I was... Like in 2019, I think, when there was an, an opening for the security infrastructure and performance team and went through a series of interviews and I got finally hired. There are like all sorts of stories, but having to try several times is not rare among 37 Signals employees. I appreciate you sharing that. I love the honesty of like, I tried this multiple <laughs> times. Yeah. Too often in my career, like I get one rejection. I'm like, okay, well, I'll never work there. Can never apply again. I also love too that you, you mentioned sometimes I applied when there was openings and sometimes there weren't because I actually think that's actually really valuable advice for people looking for jobs because my job at Podia, I emailed the CEO and was like, Hey, are you hiring? And he's like, Nope, but I'll let you know the next time we are. And then it was a month later. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. So I think it's really cool that you shared that. Sure. I mean, I've been rejected like several times in my career in different companies. And if you take that like in a constructive way, there are valuable lessons like there. Going through selection processes is something that you can get experience at. So that the fourth time you are interviewing in a, for a big, unimportant company and you are nervous, like you do that several times, things get better in terms of how you behave, at least for most people. Because there are people that are so amazing that they just go for it and make it in the first attempt. But for most people, like I think that failing and learning is like a, much more realistic <laughs> approach, right? So yeah. that, that was definitely my case. Yeah. 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 You learn a lot. Once I got rejected from like my dream company at the time, and they were like, you'd be a good cultural fit, but you don't have enough experience. And I was like, what do you mean? I don't have enough experience. Like I didn't get it. And then I've worked for Podio for five years now. And I'm like, oh, I get it. I had no experience. <laughs> Sometimes the timing's just not right. Yeah. There's a lot to learn from that. Yeah. So two things we can probably spend hours on. Chris mentioned before we started recording, and you mentioned at the beginning, active record encryption. And as someone who is now a heavy user of active record encryption, I would love to kind of dig into that. So just to set some context, like we have used encryption in active record before with adder encrypted and lockbox and other things. But when your solution to encryption came out in Rails, it was really unique because it was like, hey, we know that you're going to apply this retroactively and you've got data in your database you probably should be encrypting. Maybe it's OAuth API tokens or something that you're just storing in plain text, but they're kind of like passwords. So maybe you should encrypt those. I thought it was really cool to see that baked in as part of the solution, which was awesome. So I was curious... What were your requirements when you started working on it? And what did you like learn along the way that led you to that as the solution there? So when I joined 37Signals, the end of 2019, so two weeks after joining 37Signals, I went 
to a meetup in the Chicago office. They were celebrating like a company meetup there. That was like the first time I heard about the encryption thing because David Heinemann and Hansen, in the opening talk they, they normally deliver, Jason and, and him, he mentioned something like, my wife asked me, are your employees going to be able to check my email? So it was a very simple question like that. So he really was interested. It was an example, obviously, but he was really interested in raising the bar of security when it comes to accessing data just because email, because this was uh, in the context of launching Hey, the email service by 37 Signals. So email can contain health information, information in relation to your relationship with other people, political affiliation, whatever you want, like the most sensitive topics you can think of can be in email. So email is very sensitive, okay? So that was the, the first time, and, and I was like, I joined the infrastructure team, 37 Signal. So I got just assigned to the project, which for me was like quite a huge challenge. Well, it, it was a, a pretty big project. Really, there were no experts in encryption in the company. And certainly I was not an expert in encryption at all. So what I did first was like trying to study like all the gems that were out there doing the same. There were a few. So to see how they did things, and I think I, I learned like good things from most of them, even if I didn't find like quite the gem that we wanted to use. Then I went to work on other projects in the company. I didn't start with this right away, even if it was in my radar. So first I created a prototype. We discussed the prototype internally. We learned what we wanted to build thanks to that prototype. Then I rebuilt another version of the library because first I was using tables, like additional records to store the keys. So in the current active record encryption, we are storing the keys with the encrypted payload. But in the initial version, I was using like additional keys in the database, which was like a point of brittleness in the, in the design. And it brought like a bunch of complications, several levels. So anyway, the thing is that when we were ready to launch encryption, we were already using Hey internally, like for our email. So we started using Hey without the emails being really encrypted, like just an internal thing. So really had like that constraint of we need to encrypt like this information and we need to keep things working. And that was like the first big challenge, technical challenge that I remember. Then there were others, but that was like the seed for making the library flexible enough internally to support that. Then there was something interesting because we hired, before going public, we hired like a cryptography expert, like a security company who brought a woman who was an expert in cryptography, an actual expert. And when she reviewed implementation, there was something that caught her attention as a major flaw. I think it was like I was fixing the initialization vector in combination with some AES-256 encryption mode that it was completely like making the encryption almost useless. But she was like agitated because she knew about encryption and it was a big flaw and I was okay. The fix was easy, but the problem was that we had already data encrypted with the previous encryption scheme. So again, there was like a, a big challenge, a big technical challenge, but out of there, like I could leverage on that flexibility we had to even make the mechanism more general. So right now it's, I think it's the only Rails encryption solution there is out there that supports like multiple encryption schemes. So you can actually change the different properties of the schemes you're using over time and the system keeps working so that uh, you can query all data and things like that and things are going to work. So all those fancy features were out of 
pure necessity <laughs> out of finding ourselves in a situation where we needed to fix that for good. So yeah, that's kind of the interesting story there. I love hearing that because to me it was like, oh wow, they just really thought about every possible like edge case like up front. <laughs> so I also think it's really cool that you brought in an expert to like review it and then you open source it. How much more could you ask for as a consumer of the library? This has been tested by someone who is an expert in that field. That's amazing. Yeah, that was a, a call that uh, Jeremy there from Railscore and 37 Signal. Jeremy there made that call of bringing an expert. And I think it was an excellent call because I was living like in, a, how do you call it? Like how much you ignore and you live a happy life. <laughs> I was there. I was happily ignoring like a lot about cryptography. And I tried to educate myself, but cryptography is like this body of knowledge, which is huge. And you can just dedicate your career to that. That's amazing. Yeah. My first foray into encrypting data, I can't remember the gym I used, but I had a lot of boilerplate. It wasn't lockbox, but I had separate files with keys and all this stuff. And like, I was so scared that I was going to mess something up and lose access to my data forever and shut down the app. And so then when lockbox, like when I found lockbox, like I think everything Andrew Kane does is like gold. And so when I found that, I was like, oh, perfect. Like this works. And then when it got baked into rails, I was like, yeah, hey, one less dependency and it works just incredibly well. I love that. I don't have to do anything special to the column. Yeah. I love that. I just say, hey, encrypt this field. And then I don't think about it anymore. It's one less thing I worry about. It's wonderful. So yeah, thank you for your work on that. Sure. I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, the single column thing is really nice because in same thing with file uploads in the past, it was like, hey, you want to do one file upload, then it's four fields. You want to do two or three on the same model, then have fun. Here's eight or 12 different columns you got to add. And having that all, you know, in a single column where it can be serialized, this makes sense. Why wouldn't we just do that and then have it all contained in one place? And it's just easier to manage. It's just nice. Recently, well, I was partially doing the 256 thing for action text embeds or whatever, but we had encrypted stuff as well in the SHA-1. And now the rotations for that is like super easy. And that's like a very nice thing. I feel like Jason in the past doing encryption stuff. If I screw this up and we encrypt stuff and something breaks, I might lose all of this data, which would be <laughs> horrible. And I just don't really feel that fear anymore either. We're not, like you were saying, crypto experts can spend their entire career on it. It's very yeah. math heavy. If you've ever had to debug something that goes wrong with OpenSSL or whatever, good luck. You'll end up with a crazy stack trace and have to use like, I dug into S trace and was like looking at all the internal stuff that happens there and trying to debug some random thing. And it's, like, it's yeah, it's a quite a lot of stuff to learn and it's crazy along yeah. the same timeline were you working on because you had talked about you're using hey internally so you started encrypting stuff but also to david's wife's question about like, hey can you read our emails one of the things that i remember like you initially released was the console 1984 gem which i love and really the value that like hey anybody that's in production looking at the application on the console probably should be telling us why they're there and keeping track of what they're doing. And I was just curious, was that around the same time? Oh, we need to also 
not just encrypt the data, but also do some audit logging and stuff like that around who's doing what? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So right after the encryption was in place, like I started working on both console 1984 and, well, first it was console 1984 because so first we were just registering like the, the console logs and trying to prevent like access to encrypted data. I got a first version of 1984 like very quickly done, like maybe in three or four days, but it was incredibly naive. So it was very easy to circumvent, but it was kind of working. It was like essentially offering like a decrypt command so that you can access the decrypted data and you could also, you were in an encrypted mode by default, so you wouldn't see encrypted data by default. That was working. It was like connected with our logging pipeline. First, we were collecting like the logs internally in our, well, we use Kibana internally. So we were like uh, collecting our logs in our logging pipeline and exploiting them through Kibana. So let's say the auditing system was like a custom dashboard in Kibana, like for the first version we, we built. So far, this was like an internal gem. When we were to release the whole thing, I created like Audits 1984, which is like a very basic admin interface for auditing these logs. And instead of emitting those logs through the standard output or through the login, whatever login system you have configured, instead of doing that, we started to store them in the database. So we built like this tool for auditing those logs. And then I worked on several improvements to make the the system harder to circumvent because it's easy that essentially the problem with Ruby console is that by design, it's a system that it lets you execute arbitrary Ruby code and Ruby is incredibly flexible, right? So it's hard to try to cover all the ways you can try to skip the controls we set in place. But still, I'm pretty happy. I mean, there are no known issues that I know of about how to do that, but I'm sure someone with expert enough can could, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if someone discover new ways of doing that. But I always say that it's a good baseline. Obviously, maybe it's not going to, if you have like very malicious actor with access to your console, to your production console in Rails, and that person knows what they're doing, and maybe it's not like bulletproof, but it's still way better than not having anything in place, right? So Yeah, if they've got production Rails console access, they've got probably yeah. <laughs> privileges to do almost anything they want. But it's one of those that's really nice to be like, well, we need to do customer support and want to just make sure that people who are doing that are not going around and doing malicious things or whatever. I think, what was it? Vercel had an employee that was like, a customer's domain was too similar mm -hmm. to theirs. And so they had done stuff that they had access to that they shouldn't have or whatever. And like, this is a great tool for that, where it's like, hey, production console is necessary evil. We don't want you to have to do this ever, really. But we can provide a way to make that a lot more, you know, just monitored and audited and keep that safer. And I think that's a really nice thing because that I mean as soon as it came out I was like oh yeah why wouldn't we use this in default for every application we run because we might as well and it was like when I was working by myself I, I was like I don't need to audit myself but having other people that you work with yeah makes perfect sense and it felt like something that I would want to include like out of the box on everything once you get used to work with 
like with encrypted data, it feels weird, like not doing it. After a while, it starts feeling weird. Like, why am I seeing like this piece of customer information? Even if it's not sensitive, by how customer names to do, for example, it's not of my business. Even if it's nothing, it's like sensitive data. It's not, I shouldn't be seeing it. Let me ask you one quick question. Are you currently using one service for uptime monitoring, another service for error tracking, another service for status pages, and yet another service to monitor cron jobs and microservices, paying for all of those separately may be costing you a lot of money. If you want to simplify your stack and lower those bills, it's time to check out HoneyBadger. HoneyBadger combines all of those services into one easy to use platform. It's everything you need to keep production healthy and your customers happy. Best of all, HoneyBadger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at honeybadger.io. That's www.honeybadger.io. And also, I wanted to mention that another gem that we released, which was also out of pure necessity, is mass encryption, which is is a library for encrypting data in mass using active record encryption. And that came out of having to encrypt like all the Basecamp database, billions of records there. Initially, we only supported like encrypting records one by one. And with this library, it's going to use jobs and the jobs are going to use absurd SQL statements so that you're going to update a bunch of records, 1,000 records at a time, something like that. So it's way faster. So if someone wants to encrypt like a large database, that's definitely like a gem to, to keep in mind. Yeah. I don't think I even knew that existed. That's super handy. Yeah, a lot of old applications will have lots of things that you probably want to go encrypt and probably millions of records and opening the Rails console or running a rake task that does them one by one probably takes a ridiculous <laughs> amount of time. So this sounds really awesome. I don't remember the numbers, but the, the numbers for Basecamp was, were ridiculous. Like we wouldn't never finish if we did one record at a time. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> So you were working on that. What point did you start working on the Turbo stuff that you announced at Rails World? Oh, yeah. Well, that was this year, actually. So far, I've been doing like infrastructure work, 37 signals. So mostly internal projects and also supporting infrastructure features for the existing applications. So last year, I asked the company that I would like to do some product work if possible. Because in my career, I've done like product work the places and I was kind of missing that, like working with designers with user-facing features in the front-end and, and such. I had a lot of front-end battles in my career. So I was kind of missing those. And I was like, I was given like this wonderful opportunity of working on the new product that the company was talking about, which was the, the calendar, the Hey Calendar. So that's how everything started. This year, like I started, I was on sabbatical in January. I started on February on the calendar. So th there was like a, an HTML prototype showing several screens for the calendar with the, the principal designer working on Scott Atom. Principal designer working on the product had been exploring ideas with uh, some HTML prototype in Rails. So what I did was starting to animate some screens and rendering some screens for the calendar. And I was using the approach I would recommend anyone to use when you are starting a Rails application, which is relying on regular turbo drive behavior, which is using Rails as it's meant to be used and relying on regular full page body replacements. 
which is what you get for free. So I was doing essentially, I'm going to update or create a new record. I'm going to redirect back, render the full screen, and I, I'm going to be done. And I was moving pretty quickly using that approach. But the, the thing is that the UI fidelity we wanted wasn't there, obviously, because in a calendar, well, I, I think you're familiar with calendar applications, right, Chris? I've seen that you have <laughs> some experience there, right? Yeah, for anybody that doesn't know that, I try to teach myself how to write a Ruby gem and made a little calendar gem and then published it. It didn't work or wasn't complete. And then people filed issues. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll start maintaining this. And now it's got, I think it's the most popular calendar gem <laughs> in, in Rails. And, and I've really never had a, a need to use it myself. <laughs> That's a pretty cool story. So yeah, I mean, in a calendar, in general, the responsiveness bar is high. Like you want it to be responsive. It's not like a regular application in the sense that you have this graphical canvas you want to act on and you want to see things happening in a responsive way. So the, the fidelity, the UI fidelity bar is high in a calendar. So with the default turbo drive full page body replacement implementation, it was nice but it wasn't good enough for what we wanted so for a while i was like thinking about this problem because our initial idea was like bring fidelity using regular turbo meaning turbo frames and turbo streams which were like the tools that turbo offers for partial updates that feel really great so the problem there is that the rendering in a calendar is very complex like it's way more complex than for example in hey so in hey when you are listing like your list of emails, you're just placing like one email and one email under the other. So it's, you're going to render like a list of rectangles. That's kind of easy to do. In a calendar, it's, things are more hard. Things are way harder. Like you need to place things in the proper day, for example. Imagine that you are rendering like a regular calendar grid. You need to place things in the right day. If it's an event, for example, an event can take like a bunch of days or maybe one day or maybe multiple months. How one event is rendered can affect other events. That's just talking about events. This new product is going to have like a bunch of other things happening, which are going to be kind of novel features. So the rendering was really complex and I spent a lot of time like doing the rendering. So when I went to the server and say, okay, now I'm going to imagine, I'm going to, I think one of the first things I did was creating new events. So we are going to create a new event in the calendar. Okay, I'm going to create a new event. Now I'm going to do redirect back to the screen after submitting the form. And that, that redirect back is the Rails way of reusing all that work you put in the initial rendering of the screens. It's like a direct answer. Like, okay, I'm going to reuse all that. So that felt amazing to me, like from a programming point of view. I was like, oh my God, this is what I want. Just not have to care about which cells do I need to update for reflecting this new event that could be like maybe one cell or maybe, I don't know, the whole screen and beyond. So that felt amazing from the programming point of view. But in terms of responsiveness, it wasn't feeling as great. When I was trying to think how to do that with Turbo Streams, again, all that complexity that the calendar presented in the initial rendering directly translated into the partial updates. Because, okay, you're going to imagine update an event. You can use like a regular replace, prepend, delete, whatever, a regular turbo stream action to do that. You need like a lot of Ruby code to account for all the conditions that 
edit operation is going to have in the screen. So, and I did had to do that for every element, event, and the rest of elements we were rendering in the calendar for every perspective, because we have like different timeframes over the same data for every different view in the calendar. It was like an explosion of very complex partial updates. So it was feeling like a burden in my mind, a burden that I, you know, I was kept thinking about that. Like, how are we going to do this? Because I wasn't seeing like an appealing route. So anyway, I started to look for alternatives. Phoenix Live View from the Elixir Realm has been like a solution that has always fascinated me, like because of how different it is to how regular web programming works and how original it is and how responsive it feels in the demos. So I decided to see, okay, let's see how this works internally. And internally, I mean, Phoenix Live View is like the programming model is like quite a departure from how regular web programming works. So it's based on a persisted WebSocket connection that is going to be stateful. It's going to keep the state of the connection while you are interacting with the screen. So it uses that state for calculating the difference between the new rendered content and what you have in your screen. It can do that because it's stateful and it's going to calculate the difference as a very efficient payload it's going to transmit that payload over the WebSocket. The end of it is going to apply that payload to reflect the change in the DOM. Okay. So to do that, it was using like a library called MorphDOM, which that was how, how MorphDOM entered my radar, to be honest. It was like analyzing how Phoenix Live View did things at the end of the pipeline. So I wasn't as interested on the WebSocket programming model, on the persisted connection programming model from Phoenix Live View, because it's an approach that has trade-offs for sure. And we kind of, that is something that's in general, we love to embrace how the web works in general, like how uh, HTTP is a stateless protocol and browsers are wonderful pieces of software uh, optimized to render HTML and to perform HTTP requests. So we want to leverage that as much as possible. So the Phoenix Live View approach wasn't directly something we could translate directly. And or we were not interested in translating that directly to what we were doing. But the morphing bit of it was very interesting because it was a morphdom was a standalone JavaScript library. It was doing morphing over the DOM directly, which was kind of, I think back in the day was a novel thing because as you know, first React popularized morphing by but virtual DOMs, because initially, I think they were the first ones popularizing like morphing, like React. They were using this technique where they would create like virtual DOM in memory of the page and of the new content. And it, it's going to calculate the difference in memory and it's going to apply the difference calculated in memory over the actual DOM. And React proved that that was way more performant than the previous approaches. Eventually, browsers catch up in terms of DOM manipulations. But the idea of calculating the difference between the current state and the new state you want to reach was there. And MorphDOM was an implementation of that idea, but using the actual DOM. So with MorphDOM, you could take like a DOM tree and to say, okay, I want to render this new tree of elements, calculate the difference and apply that over the actual DOM. It was a simple, small library. I grabbed the library. I created a Patch version of Turbo using that library in our calendar product. And I was like blown away. I had to make some adjustments, but I was blown away about the improvements in precisely that scenario. The scenario where you are 
making a change in a page, the server says redirect back and you see like the change reflected. So in that scenario, the improvement was very noticeable. And I was super excited when I saw that. I was just going to say, you were talking about rendering a new event in a calendar. When you think about a calendar, if you were to do that with Turbo Streams, and mm -hmm. I've definitely built some more complex things in Turbo Streams that are really felt the same friction as you're describing, where it's like, well, first, we probably have a flash message we want to insert at the top of the page. So that's got to be one turbo stream action that goes to this specific div. And then when it's like a new event, you have to know what kind of event it is. Is it a single day event? Is it going to be inserted into all 30 days of the calendar or seven of those days? Is it going to wrap around? Is it not? If it's one of those that is a multiple day thing it probably needs to be before the current day items like if you're prioritizing how they get inserted like it just becomes basically you're duplicating the logic where i think a lot of single page apps might tend to do the same thing where you've got some logic server side to render and i think that's why they're doing the server side rendering of react and stuff now or it's like use the same logic on both the client and the server but with doing that in turbo streams it's like we have to render the page out normally and have these sections anyways when you load it for the first time so the server has to know how to do that and its templates but then if we want to do that dynamically when you create one we've got to recreate all that logic in turbo streams and it feels like why are we doing this and the morphing really solves that problem because you just have the same process. You just say, hey, render the page just like you would do normally. If there's a flash message, it just gets included in your layout just like it normally would. You don't do anything special. And then you sort of get effectively what all those turbo streams would have done to update the page, but just using the exact same process because you have the diffing with MorphDOM or Idiomorph or any of those libraries. Yeah. You explained that like wonderfully well. That's exactly it. So the thing is that with Turbo Streams, you need to manually create the partial updates, accounting for all the logic and conditions that are needed there. And with Morphing, you can reuse like the initial rendering completely and leave to an algorithm the calculation of the partial updates. As a high level, I, I see it like that too. You are delegating that to a piece of software. Of course, there is, it's not like there are trade-offs to pay because with Morphing, First of all, the response from the server is going to be more expensive to generate because you are re-rendering everything instead of just a little bit of code that, or the little bit of HTML or whatever you want to update there. And you need to transmit that payload that is going to be higher also. So there is like some additional network latency. You know, it's like a miracle that, you know, it's impossible not to use. You need, you're paying some trade-offs, but the trade-offs are, I think are fantastic and are worth it in most cases because the responsiveness you get is wonderful. I'd love to hear some of those trade-offs and like you noticed building it in an actual application where you're not just like, oh, let's just add MorphDOM as a feature. You're actually using it and seeing the exact issues that you're like, we lose focus state on these form elements or, or scroll position is wonky in these cases or whatever. Because those are the things that like when you're building a library like this, I think it's those actual use case applications that you're like, oh, these are the rough edges that really are show where the polish comes from. Yeah. And along those lines too, 
as someone who has tried to use Morphdom directly, even some of the surprise things that aren't necessarily like input, but like this didn't update. Why didn't this update? I think is interesting too. Well, the first thing I'd like to mention is that there was something that we didn't like much about Morphdom, which is that in the way it works, it's really picky about IDs, about DOM IDs. So it relies on DOM IDs in order to match elements. And the problem when Morphin fails to match elements, the problem is that what you get is not like an error. You get essentially trees that you are not expected are replaced. So instead of getting like a smooth update, you get like a full, imagine like the, the first main container in your application get replaced because there is a flash notice without an ID that didn't find like a match or whatever. So those kinds of errors for me were like a, a blocker because we were looking for a seamless thing and that was completely not seamless. <laughs> so there is this library from the HTML X project, which is Idiomorph, which is essentially like Morphdom, is newer. So probably it was heavily inspired by Morphdom, but it uses like a more relaxed algorithm for matching nodes. And in our experience, like it's completely seamless. It doesn't have that, that ID matching requirement in order to work. And if we have tested it with realistic screens, complex screens, and it works really well. So that was like the first thing that I wanted to point out. Well, the two main problems we saw in our tests and two problems that we are going to offer a direct answer for since the first version. The first of all is that what happens when you have loaded new content in your page and you refresh it? For example, if you have paginated down in the calendar, in, in the card table, for example, in Basecamp, the, the Kanban feature from Basecamp, when you have paginated down and you have loaded new cards and you morph the page, you update the page, what happens with those new pages of contents. Because if you are like morphing the body of the page, when you reload the page, those new pages are not going to be in the new body and they are going to disappear. So that was kind of an, an edge case, which was like absolutely crucial to look at a solution for, because it was kind of invalidating the, the whole thing. I mean, it's kind of quite common to have pagination or some kind of dynamic content you want to load in a page after the initial load. So that's kind of common constraint. So what we did there was supporting turbo frames, like leveraging turbo frames. So when we are doing a page refresh in the new feature that we are going to upstream to turbo eight, you can flag turbo frames with an attribute. I think it's called refresh equal reload. I think it's the attribute. And when you mark a turbo frame with that attribute and a page refresh happens, it's going to reload that turbo frame. So if you make sure that you load the new content in your screen with turbo frames and you do that, that's going to work well with page refreshes. And that's actually what we are currently using in the, in the calendar for, for paginating information. And that works well and solves the, the problem. And the other case is that sometimes you want to preserve a screen state when you are making a page refresh. For example, if you have opened a menu and you are acting on some element and a page refresh happens because you have submitted something or whatever, you might like to keep that menu opened. So there is an attribute. Well, we are actually reusing the data turbo permanent, I think. There was an existing turbo attribute that we are reusing for this, the version we are upstreaming to turbo eight. So 
we are solving those two problems. There is also in Idiomorph, for example, it has a setting so that when you are morphing the page, if a form control has a focus, so if document active element equals to that control is not going to touch it. So to keep focus, for example, to keep that untouched, this is pretty much working in our use cases, but I'm sure that when people start using it in the wild, like more things will pop up and more scenarios to, to handle. But with these simple things, I think that the system, I mean, we have tested it in very realistic scenarios and, and it's working very well for us. So I'm optimistic it's going to work well for most folks out there, but there will be things to refine for sure. Do you run into any issues with, say, like a password manager extension that might inject some stuff on the page? Or like Loom, I know, adds buttons to different websites. Does that end up problematic with the morphing? Or is that one where it's like the current page has these elements, we're adding the new changes, but that's not in there. Does it keep that stuff or does it remove it? And then maybe the Chrome extension just re-adds that stuff? We use one password internally and we haven't run into issues with it. But that's not to mean that it might not happen. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about tensions, to be honest. I, I would have to of- assume that they implement sort of the stimulus style of monitoring the page to work with single page apps and anything else that might do the exact same process of not a full page load mm-hmm. and then applying their changes. They got to be monitoring the page and then doing yeah. something dynamic, I would assume. So probably would- if you do run into issues, it's more like an issue with their implementation, not so much like the idiom or diffing or anything, I would guess. Yeah, I would expect that. Also, like you can replace a form that's just in a regular AJAX request, like in a page. And, yeah, and you right. Would be like, so I remember in an issue we found in our tests, there is an, a scenario like when you're morphing a page, stimulus controllers are not going to reload by default because you are not touching the DOM unless it changes. That's a good thing because if you're thinking like in the Turbo Streams updates, equivalence is the same. You don't want stimulus controllers to reconnect if nothing has changed in the page. But we found some cases where some stimulus controllers were on the connect. When connected, they were like modifying the element under the hood, maybe adding some attribute or something like that. So one heuristic we are using is that when you are morphing a DOM node, meaning when the DOM node has changed and you are updating it with idiomorph, it has a stimulus controller. It's going to reconnect the stimulus controller so that you make sure that it gets disconnected and connected again. So in the use cases we found in our code base, that was solving the issue. Okay, so that was like a heuristic that was working well for us. Maybe we might need to introduce more fine-grained controls there to say, okay, you want to reconnect, you don't want to reconnect. But we are really trying to find like a very seamless, happy path and fight hard before deviating from that because we want to keep things simple. Like my dream or my vision for this is we are going to enhance the default turbo drive behavior without making that a parameter concern. That's what I would love, that you updated to turbo eight and your screens started to behave better when you submitted forms and so without having to do anything. So probably reality is going to bring some adjustments over that vision, but that's still like a, an important vision for us to make this seamless. Yeah, I can imagine you have a set of tabs, the user changes to the second tab, but it refreshes. Server-side doesn't know you're on tab number two, so it might re-render with the attribute being like, select the default 
tab or something. And then you'd have to reconcile that in some way when you refresh the page. But those hopefully become seamless. And then you sort of eliminated the whole spaghetti, I guess you could call it, of the turbo streams trying to interact with 12 different things on a create event or something that would be just the good old redirect to the show page or whatever, and the rest of it's taken care of for you. Yeah. And this is meant to work so that the URL should reflect like the page you're seeing. So if there are like many screen state changes that are not reflected in the initial load and you're keeping those state in the page, you will probably need to, depending on those, you're probably going to use like this data turbo preserve tag in creative ways so that those get respected with morphing. But yeah, that's the, the idea. <laughs> that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. We've probably talked for another couple hours, but okay. Uh, yeah. This is super exciting. Is there anything you want to share before we wrap up here or drop a release date for Turbo 8 or anything? <laughs> uh, no, we don't have a release date. I mean, we are still working on the pull requests. The pull requests are opened in the repo, so I invite so we can go try one. it. Yeah, you can go to try and to get feedback. We have already collected like some good feedback on the approach. The other side of this are like broadcasting changes, which we can discuss now, but there is like another exciting simplification that this, this is going to bring to Turbo. I wrote an article, dev.37signal.com. So you, you can check the article there describing the, the whole approach if you are interested. We don't have a release date. We are working on it. It should be like a matter of weeks, at least for getting this merge, like few weeks, not a lot of weeks. And then Turbo 8 should happen like shortly after that. But no release date. Sorry about that. <laughs> and thanks so much for inviting me. I was going to point out that someone wants to reach out. I have a web page, which is jorgemanrubia.com. And you can reach me by email. I love like email discussion. So jorge at hey.com is my email if someone wants to reach out. Yeah, it was my, my pleasure talking to you, folks. Yeah, it was fantastic having you. And maybe, yeah, maybe when Turbo 8 drops or something, you can come back on and we can catch up and do this sure. again. Sure. Yeah. It'd be cool to see what we talked about today and then what's evolved in the final version of it. So yeah, nice. looking forward to it. Well, thanks for joining us. This was a blast and we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much, folks. Thank you. Thank you.